welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 26, recorded on November 5th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Remember, remember, it is the 5th of November, so watch out for those fireworks. And let's jump into our first news story this week. We've got a roadmap for Plasma Mobile. Yes, and a very sensible one at that. So Sebastian Kugler, I think is his name, has blogged about this roadmap. And it, it just makes total sense that they've got these various stages. Prototype first, which they've already got, then a feature phone, then a basic smartphone, and then a featured smartphone. And as usual, there's a very humble tone to it. It's not trying to say that we're this amazing thing. It's trying to say we've got this great potential, and if everyone comes and helps and helps shepherd it the way they want, it could be something amazing. Yeah, that's exactly the word I was thinking of. Also realistic. They say their development strategy is to build a basic system and platform around their core values and then extend on that. And when I said realistic, I like their timeline. They're saying we don't have a specific timeline for this roadmap for two main reasons. Number one, it's a participatory project, so we need more help. And the more help we get, the faster it'll get done. So that's going to have an impact. Secondly, they say, we don't want to deliver half-assed software just because we set a timeline. We want to create quality software to build products upon. Seems pretty realistic. Yeah, very realistic. And one thing that jumped out at me was that they would consider Android app support. Obviously, that's way down the line for the, the kind of the final featured smartphone. But at least they're not dismissing it like Ubuntu did. Pig-headedly, they would say, you know, Shotworth was not interested in having Android app support which, okay, would have been harder at the time for Ubuntu phone, and now it's getting a little bit easier. But I think that is a very reasonable goal. If you want people to use your system, then you're going to have to have Android app support. I mean, look at Sailfish. That's what has allowed that to become, okay, it's a very small niche, but at least it's starting to slowly take off. And I think that a big part of that is the fact that you can run at least some Android apps on it. Yeah, it seems in 2017 and early 2018, if you're going to ship a mobile product, that's a fundamental must. You have to have that big app ecosystem, or no one in the featured smartphone category is going to want it. Yeah, exactly. I initially started as a skeptic of the Plasma Mobile Project, but reading through this blog post, which we'll have linked in the show notes at linuxactionnews.com slash 26, I'm on board. And this steady pace of improvement should be just in time for the purism folks. Well, that's certainly what they're hoping. <laughs> So Matthias Klump, who is a PureOS developer at Purism, has blogged about testing Plasma Mobile on an i.mx6 test board. And it's all basic stuff, and he says it doesn't run that well, but it's kind of the first step towards actually getting a proper operating system and a good UI running on a device. It looks more tablet-sized rather than phone-sized, but that's not the point of this. This, as I said, is very much the first step. This is about working out the kinks. This is about getting Kwin and Wayland working on this thing, getting their Debian testing-based operating system booting on this thing. And it's good to see this, this progress, really. But there was a bit of a red flag in this blog post. I don't know if you noticed it. No, I don't think I did. What was it? He says, last weekend I did an initial experiment in getting Plasma Mobile working on this i.mx6. Right. Now, They've just completed their crowdfunder. They've just got their $2 million plus. Why is this guy working on it at the weekend and not during his work days? It seems like the kind of thing that he should be getting paid in his work day to do. 
Or am, am I reading too much into that? Maybe. We could chalk it up to some enthusiasm and uh, say that um, he was getting uh, all excited about going into work on Monday and uh, getting this thing working. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> maybe, or maybe they have flexible work hours or something, but it just it seems a little bit hobbyist, and, and that worries me because if they're going to do this, if they're going to pull off this huge task of getting a mobile operating system and a phone that's totally independent to market, then they need to really be serious about it and not do it in a kind of amateur hobbyist way. That's true. I completely agree. Uh, although, we, for all we know, perhaps this kind of experiment's more fun when you can have the hookah pipe with them and uh, they don't have hookah at the office. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe I'm being too picky here. And maybe it's just that it arrived last thing on a Friday afternoon or something and he took it home and carried on working on it. Yeah. I say stay skeptical. Yeah, well, let's let's hope that uh, they are very serious about it because they're going to need to be. The Mozilla Foundation is getting serious about boosting privacy in an upcoming version of Firefox. Version 58, which is expected in January of 2018, is going to have a feature that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, they're going to block browser canvas fingerprinting, which uses HTML5 specs to basically take a snapshot of the browser and then to assign a unique or potentially unique fingerprint which identifies you. My first question would be, why is this even a thing? Why hasn't this been stopped by Mozilla a long time ago? Well, that's kind of a fascinating story. So this effort was really pioneered by the Tor project for their Tor browser, which is, of course, built on top of Firefox. It's almost all Firefox. And they they came up with this solution over there, and Mozilla sort of took a look at it and said, "Yeah, okay, this this is something we'd be willing to do. This isn't um, this isn't really going to solve the problem either. I have to be completely honest because there's been talks of of blocking this kind of stuff for a while, and so trackers are, are already coming up with new methodologies. They call it a fingerprint because it's essentially pretty statistically close to identifying you." Um, it has a good, good, good chance that it's you, and it looks at things like your your fonts, your WebGL capabilities, um, the window size you have, the resolution. It takes all of these attributes that uh, the HTML canvas spec ha- can get access to, and it puts it all together, generates a hash, and then that hash becomes the fingerprint. And they they create a database, and that gets shared, and they get to sell it for money. It's it's a real racket we all should have gotten into, and then. They can use that to track you across different sites, even when you have certain types of tracking turned off. Yeah, and it means that, at least in the case of Tor, they can tell who you are potentially because they can compare your Tor usage with your regular Firefox usage. But as you say, this is an arms race, so I think it is important that they've done it, but there are other things that they are going to have to stay on top of as well. Speaking of Tor, just a quick mention for Linux and Mac users of Tor in the audience. Keep an eye out for an update coming soon. Tor Moil, which is a flaw that's been discovered in Tor, is triggered when users click on links that begin with file colon slash slash. And this is applicable on Mac OS or Linux. It was applicable on Windows. It's already been patched. And it allows the operating system to directly connect to the remote host and bypass the Tor browser. We Are Segment was the security research firm that found this, and the Tor project says that in the meantime, use the stable release, don't click on file colon slash slash links, and keep an eye out for an update very soon. Well, to channel Alan Jude, patch your shit. So, Canonical has joined the GNOME Advisory Board. 
Yeah, the Gnome Foundation announced on November 1st that Canonical, as they put it, the creator of the Ubuntu operating system, has joined the Gnome Foundation advisory board, and the board now includes companies like Google, the Linux Foundation, the Free Software Foundation, and others. This was pretty much inevitable, wasn't it, when they made the switch to Gnome? And it's good to see that they are not sort of shirking their responsibility and they are taking this desktop stuff seriously, even though some of us, including me, <laughs> thought that they weren't going to do that. So fair play to them. They are living up to their responsibilities and contributing to Gnome where they should be. Yeah, and long term, I'll be looking to see how much influence do they get? Do they get a full representation uh, at at the council? And will Canonical be able to bring over some of their user study data from Unity and Unity 8 that they conducted even more recently to Gnome? And could that be helpful in some way? Those are things that uh, were recently sort of hinted at by Will Cook, the Ubuntu desktop manager on Linux Unplugged. And I think that stuff could be pretty useful because it's not often that open source projects pay for real user testing. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. You go there to support this show and you get a free seven-day trial to a platform that's built by Linux geeks, educators, and developers to teach you more about Linux. It's a full-featured training library with everything you need to learn new skills and advance your career with self-paced in-depth video courses, hands-on scenario-based labs, learning paths, which are content that's been planned by their instructors for specific career tasks. Oh, and real human instructors that are available to help you whenever you need help. And if it's time for a certification, they've got courses created specifically to prepare you for those exams. They also have practice exams and quizzes, flashcards, all kinds of little nuggets, they call them, tiny bits of wisdom if you just want to deep dive on a topic. iOS and Android apps for the go. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged, a platform to learn more about every Linux cloud and DevOps topic. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Okay, let's talk about Bitcoin and an article that jumped out at me this week. A little bit clickbaity, but that doesn't change the facts. And the headline of this is, One Bitcoin transaction now uses as much energy as your house in a week. So doing the maths of how many transactions there are, which is currently around 300,000 per day, and looking at the difficulty level and how much electricity is actually needed to mine Bitcoin, which is basically just processing transactions that's the the crux of it works out at 215 kilowatt hours per transaction which is ridiculous that is in the uk the average price is about 13 pence per kilowatt hour which means that each transaction is costing about 30 pounds worth of electricity per transaction not per bitcoin mined and it just goes to show that, okay, I know traditional servers use a lot of power and banks have a lot of servers and all the rest of it, but this is just ridiculous. I'll give you my red flag on this. So this is a piece over at Motherboard, which is quoting uh, a blog post over at DigiCommunist, which is citing a published report by IEA.org, which is the International Energy Agency, uh, and their key world energy statistics for 2017, which is only available as a PDF, a 97-page PDF. And so this is several layers abstracted. And so in this, you lose the nuance of what kind of hardware is doing the mining. 
Is this based on CPU calculations? Is this based on GPU? Is this based on ASIC? Is it based on all cryptocurrencies like Litecoin and Ethereum? Is it based only on Bitcoin? And which fork of Bitcoin? These are all questions that fundamentally alter the amount of energy that is being consumed by a miner. And so a GPU miner would use considerably more power than, say, an ASIC miner, which is a purpose-built processor and it's much more efficient. And you have to be very clear on the type of hardware doing the mining to be able to derive the correct amount of power consumption. Well, that is true. But even if it's an order of magnitude less than that, that's still pretty bad. I, I would agree. It's probably still got to be pretty outrageous. Back in my heyday of Bitcoin mining, uh, I literally warmed my garage studio with several Bitcoin miners. So I converted essentially that into heat. I would have been running heaters anyways, and this allowed me to run less heaters. There is some justification in that, I suppose. This is going to come to a head, though, if cryptocurrencies become even more popular than there are today. I will point out a couple of possible advantages that cryptocurrencies have over other traditional stores of value. Mining for cryptocurrencies potentially could be powered by renewable sources. Say here in Washington, predominantly our electricity is rather cheap because it's hydroelectricity. There is no renewable resource for gold or other precious materials that we mine from the earth that are also considered stores of value. Bitcoin is the one that we have invented ourselves based on math that could actually be powered by the sun. It's potentially possible. But I would think it would have to get popular enough that there would be a market to demand that. Well, that is true. And as I said, all the fiat currencies fly around the world from server to server. And gold hasn't had much to do with currencies for quite a long time now. But I have an instinct that the fiat currencies are using less power than this. Maybe I'm totally off base and maybe this is a drop in the ocean compared to what the dollar uses or whatever and, and the various exchanges. But it just seems that in an age where people are very concerned about energy usage and trying to move over to renewables and stuff and cutting energy usage where you can, it just seems like an awful waste of electricity to me. Wouldn't it be great if it was also going towards solving big problems, like sort of how SETI at home or some of the cancer research? Yeah, folding at home, that sort of thing. Yeah, and there are actually some cryptocurrencies around that, but they're just not nearly as popular as the ones that just grind out hard math problems. Yeah, it's a shame that that wasn't really thought of in the initial design of Bitcoin, because that would have basically alleviated my concerns on this. Maybe there's hope, Joe. In the meantime, we have a zombie among us. SCO versus IBM is not dead yet. Surely. Surely it must be dead. It no? was dead nope. years ago, wasn't nope. it? Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. This is the story that won't die. It kicked off in 2003, and the dispute centers on Project Monterey, a joint effort by SCO and IBM to build a unified Unix capable of running on several different microprocessor architectures. But it eventually went bust. And that's sort of the heart, the crux of the matter. Yeah, so SCO decided to sue IBM over various different aspects of it, saying that IBM had taken proprietary code from them and given it to the Linux community effectively, and that that was undermining their business as a result. And it's just gone back and forth. We've had so many court cases about this, and it just we think that it's over, and then it just somehow gets resurrected. This is sort of an interesting one, though, because there is a bit of a possible crack in the system for SCO to wiggle its way in. 
it really all hinges on this misappropriation of their original code in a Monterey, which then IBM was able to point to and say, there's existing public code out there. We just contributed code to AIX and Linux that was already public. The problem is, according to SCO, there was never an official or formal partnership or joint venture as a matter of law to do this. They were considered on good business relationship terms, which apparently is a legal thing, um, but there was no agreement for this code exchange and then it eventually becoming public. It was like a handshake, I guess. But this is only a partial success for Sky, really, because they were trying to pursue three different cases effectively, or three different aspects to the case, and only one of them has been ruled to be worthy of continued challenge. And that is the one about the intellectual property. Whereas the kind of bigger one about tortuous interference, which is where they're alleging that IBM deliberately sabotaged their business practices, basically, by giving this code to the Linux community to make it so that Linux was a viable competitor in the enterprise space to SCO's proprietary Unix. That is not going to be allowed to be pursued, probably. So. I don't think that this is as huge as some people think it is, basically. I think that it's not going to go away, and they might make a few quid from IBM, but I don't think they're going to be going after the likes of Red Hat and and making billions of dollars. Continuing from our Department of Legal Stories that you probably don't really want to follow, so we're going to read them for you, there is a bizarre legal action being filed against the Software Freedom Conservancy by, well, a former friend of theirs. Yeah, the Software Freedom Law Center. This is, on the face of it, very strange because the Software Freedom Law Center and Conservancy are often thought of in the same breath, really. They, they're considered to be almost the same thing by a lot of people. Indeed. Yeah, the Software Freedom Law Center was the organization that helped launch the Software Freedom Conservancy. <laughs> so, yeah, they're often thought together. Yeah, and this is the Software Freedom Law Center telling Conservancy that they want their trademark back, which it's just very strange. It seems that there are things going on behind the scenes here that are not public. (laughs) It must be, because these people were friends, and now they've clearly had a falling out. I completely agree, Joe. It's a week of red flags for you and I. So this process was started by the Law Center, by the Software Freedom Law Center, on September 22nd. So this has been in the works for a little while. And there is quite a bit of different theories behind the scenes about what's going on here. I don't know if I'm going to pick a particular theory at this point. I'm still doing my my end of the research. This all came out on November 3rd, and uh, I find it very surprising. And it's bizarre because these two organizations have been so closely linked. They haven't always agreed. Um, especially some of the folks behind the scenes haven't always agreed with each other, but they've generally seen as a trying to accomplish the same goal. Keeping in mind that the Software Freedom Law Center filed a petition on September 22nd, you can't help but note that the news of this came out just shortly after the new kernel enforcement statement that the Software Conservancy was strongly behind. And the message of this Enforcement statement was legal as a last action resort to be initiated only when other community efforts have failed to resolve the problem. And that was 
the kernel developers and the conservancy agreeing that legal enforcement is the last action and we should try to make other things work first, take other avenues. Yeah, there's no way this is a coincidence. The Software Freedom Law Center clearly don't agree with the idea that lawsuits should be the last resort. But I think another thing that is key to this is if you go back to around that same time in September this year, Eben Moglen published a blog post that basically said that organizations like Conservancy are pretty much irrelevant now. And in this post, he talks about how in the early days of free software, it was quite easy to set up charitable status for these projects. And they were making quite a good living out of that, I think, the Software Freedom Law Center. And then under the Obama administration, the IRS had some staff changes and that made it much more difficult to get this charitable status. And that's why they set up organizations like Conservancy to be an umbrella organization to help small free software projects with all the fiscal stuff. And so he's now saying that the IRS staff have changed and now they're much more amenable. It's much easier for a smaller project to have financial independence effectively, helped, of course, by the Software Freedom Law Center who take their cut or at least get paid to do all the legal work for them. So it could just boil down to that, that they want to start making a few quid again now that they can. It's possible. A little competitive edge. I'm not sure I buy that argument. It seems like a good public explanation. I'll give it that. But it doesn't make real sense if you think about it. The Software Freedom Conservancy would even have a place even if all of the IRS policies had lined up in favor of the Law Center. The reason I say that is you need something that is consistent in the storm. And U.S. politics can swing and a Democrat could come into office in four years or in eight years. And the IRS policies could realign in a way that was hostile towards open source projects. So you need a place like the Conservancy to house projects like GIMP, which are over 20 years old and don't need to be subject to the whims of the U.S. political system. Yeah, that is a good point. And it just begs the question as what exactly has gone on here? What are the internal politics of these two organizations that have gone from being so cozy to now being so hostile to each other? It it just seems very strange to me. And I'm sure that we're going to hear more about this over the coming weeks and months because there's a story underneath here and it's going to come out one way or another. Indeed. And when there's an interesting development in the story that we think you guys will want to hear about, we'll tell you. So check back every single week for all the news stories in Linux. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get this here show. Yeah, and you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact if you want to get in touch with us and tell me I'm wrong about Bitcoin. You can also support the whole network and future shows at Patreon, patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.